those who have made it out this morning. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 17. If you need a Bible, these guys are up and they have Bibles in their hands. They can bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation chapter 17 today. Let me say before we begin that entire books have been written on this chapter alone that we're going to look at. Two that I highly recommend. Uh, one is called The Two Babylons, written by Alexander Hislop, and the other is The Woman Rides the Beast, written by Dave Hunt. Both great books to, to get a hold of and kind of digs into this whole chapter with a whole lot more detail than we can cover in, in about 40 minutes. And so I encourage you to do that. With that said, the title of my message this morning is borrowed from a movie. It's called Days of Future Past. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to to come into this place where it's warm. And Lord, to be uh, warmed by just worship and and the study of your word, Lord. We uh, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Lord, we ask that it would have not only information, but application in our lives that would change us and to draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today, we pray, Lord, you especially touch their heart. So bless our time together, we pray, Lord, we commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1906, a man named Lee DeForest, he's an inventor of the vacuum tube, which made possible for live radio broadcasting and eventually TV, he said this, Theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about. 1958, the president of IBM Corporation was a guy by the name of Thomas J. Watson, Jr., and he said this, I think there's there's a world market for about five computers. 1962, Dick Rowe, president of Decca Records at the time, refused to sign the Beatles, citing, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. (laughs) The story of a fortune teller gazing into a crystal ball to a frog, true story, and and says to the frog, you're going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have this insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you. You'll fascinate her. The frog asked, where am I? At a singles club? No, the fortune teller says, biology class. (laughs) Listen, we are blessed because we have what everyone in the world wishes they had, and that is perfectly accurate information about the future. In fact, the Lord tells us this in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 in New Living Translation. Remember the things I've done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And the fact of the matter is, the future is laid out for us in the pages of Scripture, most completely really in the book of Revelation. See, what we're reading about this morning is very specific future events laid out for us, including Scripture, revealing the judgment of God coming upon the false religious system that started a very, very long time ago in the past, 
yet has damned so many souls of so many men and women throughout the ages, and it will move on to the future until it finally comes to an end when the Lord returns. And I have to say, chapter 17 of Revelation is one of the most astounding prophecies to be found in the Word of God because it's not only one that can be verified in history, but as we follow it, as we read it, we see it verified in our daily news as we look at our news and we know what's going to be in our future, past, present, and future, days of future past. So many of our stories in Revelation, it seems like we've been just reading the daily headlines and not the the, the Bible, but they kind of are fitting together. Well, here in chapter 17, we're taken back really to before chapter 15, before chapter 16 and 15, and now we have some details being filled in, if you will, concerning this false religious system. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see an amazement, an abomination, and a destruction. Number one, an amazement. Look at verses 1 through 6. The one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in his spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup of golden a golden cup of full of ab- abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. John here begins to write what he sees. Now remember, John had just witnessed the seven angels pouring out the seven bowls of wrath, plagues on mankind, specifically on Babylon. No doubt that left John a little bit confused. So this angel comes along to John in verse 1 and invites him to come and see what this is all about. He says, come and see the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And notice that this woman, John sees, is called the great harlot. In fact, she's called that four times in this chapter, and she's called the mother of harlots, and her sin is fornication. Now we know that in the Bible, harlotry is, is a, a standing symbol for one thing, idolatry. Whenever God's people turn from the true and living God, or any other group people worship anything other than God, it was seen in the Bible under the heading of uh, harlotry. So here, when John sees this mother of all harlots, he marveled with great amazement. It's interesting to me that John didn't marvel with great amazement when he saw the beast rising to power uh, over the political governments of the world. It didn't, uh, you know, John didn't see, uh, didn't marvel with great amazement when he saw the angel flying through the sky presenting the everlasting gospel. No, but when John sees the mother of all harlots, what she represents, that's where he marveled with great amazement. Because what was unknown to him at that time is the direction that the church would take over the years. See, John was a part of the early church, and many regarded as very innocent, very pure in its beginnings. But what John sees right now is something far different. He sees a corrupt church, 
an idolatrous religion mixed with the final world government. And it's shocking. He's amazed as he describes this woman in verse 3, sitting on a scarlet beast, which is full of names and blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, she's arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and, and, and pearls. And in her hand, a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And her title, verse 5, written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now we know who the beast is. The beast is the Antichrist that we've looked at already uh, in Revelation. We see here in the first three and a half years after the rapture of the church, the Antichrist, he's going to establish his political system. The one in which man can't buy or sell without taking his mark, his pledge, the Pledge of Allegiance to him. And, and then, but along that same line, uh, he's going to bring religion into his plan. He's going to have a sidekick called the false prophet, promoting him all along the way. So for the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the beast is working alongside of this false prophet, and this mystery Babylon we read about, this one world religion, a system that claims to be joined to God, but like a prostitute is unfaithful to God, this woman who's riding on this beast, on the Antichrist. Satan's one world leader, the Antichrist, will be in league with this false religious system and rise to prominence in the last days. Understand, Satan has never had an original idea in his life. His desire is to steal uh, worship from God. And he does so by mimicking him. God has a Savior, Jesus Christ, but so will Satan, the Antichrist. You know, God sends the Holy Spirit to draw men to the Savior. Satan sends a false prophet to lure, lure men to follow after the beast. God is preparing the church as a virgin bride for his son Jesus, where Satan's beast rides on a compromised religious system that God calls a whore. One day Satan will have his own church. The church, many, they'll name the name of God. They may even have a 501c3 nonprofit status. They might even be considered a, a charitable organization. A so-called church, supposedly a good thing, but she's holding a cup full of abomination, filthiness, and goodness has nothing to do with her. See, just as God has his headquarters on earth, the city of Jerusalem, Satan likewise has his mission control. People think, well, Satan's headquarters, it's in hell. And all of his demons are huddled in the corner of the flames of hell, mapping out their strategies. I think that's the furthest thing from the truth. Hell is the last place Satan wants to be. His headquarters, his focus is on, on earth. Now, Genesis 11 identifies Babel as a site of this first satanic coup, the first global revolt against God. We'll look at more of that in a moment. But it's no wonder that, again, John uh, sees this vision. He marvels with great amazement. Here is something that resembles the church, the true church, without God, without his word. And that's why it's called an abomination. That brings us to point number two, an abomination. And the angel knows that John is amazed, that he doesn't quite understand. Look at verse 7. So the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So don't be freaked out. I know it sounds really weird. I'll give you the understanding. Let's look at verses 8 through 15. He says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit to go to perdition. 
And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is a mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of the one, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. The, these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Let's go over a few of these things that John, that the angel describes to John and, and kind of put it all together while they could show us why this religious system is such an abomination. First and foremost, we know that its influence is vast. Verse 1 says, she's the great harlot who sits in many waters. And verse 15 says, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, this, this one religious, the world religious system is going to be global. One world religion. She's, she's going to have an alliance with the entire world. Verse 8, we read that she's riding the beast, the one world religious system, and it's linked to the Antichrist, who we've talked about already, described in verse 8 as the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Remember that you know the devil is going to possess the Antichrist, and, and the Antichrist is going to have an assassination attempt upon his life, it's going to appear through deception that, that he's actually died and come back to life. And, and people are going to be fooled by that and want to follow after it. But those that have not taken the mark of the beast, those that worship the Lamb, those that come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, they're not going to buy it for one moment. But the others will be deceived. They're marvel when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Verse 9, here is a mind which is wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So in John's day, he's receiving this revelation. To him, this could only be one place. Rome. Rome at that time was the capital city of the Roman Empire. Rome dominated the whole world in John's day. And it's the only city built on seven hills or seven mountains as we read here. That was a very familiar terminology to, to the first century. The city on seven hills. And it's further confirmed by John in verse 18 where it says, The woman whom you saw in that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Verse 10, There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. So not only are there, there seven hills, seven heads, these also represent seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other one is yet to come. Now here's some history for us. Five world-spanning empires preceded the first century in John's writing of Revelation. He had Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. The world empire that existed at this time was Rome. Now, since Rome, there have been others that tried to rule the world, tried to have world empires. You had Attila the Hun, 
Charlemagne, Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. None of them were successful. Yet there is one more world empire that has come that will be successful, and it will be a revived Roman Empire. Verse 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So these, these ten kings, all under this revived Roman Empire, these sub-rulers under the Antichrist, uh, they're going to be totally committed to the Antichrist, totally committed to his agenda and the furtherance of his agenda. Now, in the end, at the Battle of Armageddon, these are the same forces that are going to uh, turn against Jesus when he returns. But I love what verse 14 says. <laughs> They'll make war with the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Those are us. We're with him. We're chosen. We're faithful. So John sees this counterfeit church. He sees this false religious system, one that is very similar to that of ancient Babylon and the, and the ancient religion back then, the type of idolatry that went on in Babylon. And he sees it's going to be the final one world religion of the last days. It's location on the city on seven hills, which could only be Rome. Now at that time when John received this vision, there was no counterfeit church going on in Rome. In fact, because Christians would, would not say that Caesar is Lord, many Christians were put to death by Rome. That's why John is so surprised here to see the church married to the state in this way. He's going, what's going on here? This is a mystery. I see Rome, I see this beast and this mystery, Babylon, this harlot. What is this? It was a marriage between church and the state. It's an epitome of religion. And John is very troubled because it's a mixture of Babylonianism and Christianity. Something that started back in Genesis chapter 11 with Babylon was reborn in Rome when Christianity began and then has mixed the church and state together. And John sees this as the final one world religion of the Antichrist in the last days. That's, again, my title, Days of Future Past. Something that's happened in history that's coming around again. Now, we know that currently there in Rome is the Vatican, the world headquarters of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the word Catholic simply means universal. The Catholic Church is known as the universal church. But its headquarters being that of Rome, then it becomes a Roman Catholic Church. Well, what is a Roman Catholic Church? Well, it's the universal church that has been Romanized. In other words, the universal church has taken on the principles and practices that Rome had practiced and took from the original false religion system of Babylon there from back in Genesis chapter 11. Listen, Babylon came to be through a man named Nimrod, a man whose name means we will rebel, and he rallied his troops, uh, a man against God. He convinced people that even though God promised to never flood the earth again, God couldn't be trusted. Fear God, trust Nimrod was his campaign slogan, and it worked. At Babel, he built this waterproof tower in the midst of the desert. If God tried another flood, they'd be ready. Of course, along with his brazen rebellion, Nimrod created his own religion. No religion is always trying to build a tower to God. Religion today is what you do and, and, and not about what Jesus has done. But it all traces back to Babylon. That's why, again, 
uh, in the last days, she's called the mother of harlots and abomination. She's the source. And in the end, all of her chicks are going to come home to roost. All the variants of Nimrod's lie in religion is, is going to return. Now what is interesting, and this is where those books come in that I mentioned, the two Babylons and a woman that rides a beast. Uh, they compare ancient Babylon, the religion of ancient Babylon, with Roman Catholicism. And the comparison starts with this man named Nimrod. This guy was an interesting man. The legend goes, you can read it for yourself, that Nimrod took a wife named uh, Semiramis, who claimed to be this powerful prophetess of God. In fact, she claimed to be more than that. So Nimrod died a few years later, and it said that after his death, he came and visited her and told her that she would conceive a son, but it would be miraculous, apart from sexual relations. And this child was to save the world, and his name was to be called Tammuz. Now, when Tammuz was born, there was a celebration, because Semiramis was amazingly fertile and conceiving Tammuz, rabbits, bunnies were also brought to commemorate the celebration because they're known for their fertility. Semiramis also celebrated the birth of Tammuz with a golden egg and others followed by coloring eggs as a part of the celebration. That holiday back then was known as Ishtar. But then the story continues on that Tammuz died one winter and was resurrected three days later. The Babylonians commemorate his death by burning a log of the sun or what is known as the Yule log. And they celebrate the reappearance of Tammuz with an evergreen tree. Semiramis said that this verified that her son Tammuz was the savior of the world and that he could only be approached however through her. She was the intermediary. She set herself up as the mediator between Tammuz and the people. This is the same woman quite possibly spoken of in Jeremiah 44 where Jeremiah is rebuking the people for their idolatry. He said this in verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 44. As for the word, or the people said this to Jeremiah, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done we and our fathers, our kings and our princes, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. We're not going to listen. You don't tell us to turn away from idols. We're going to continue to worship the queen of heaven because she's helping us out here. It goes on another verse, Jeremiah seven eighteen, where the Lord says, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. So as a part of this Babylonian religion, we have a holiday named Ishtar with bunnies and eggs. There's a celebration of the reappearance of Tammuz with an evergreen tree and a yule log, and there's a celebration of the worship of a woman called the queen of heaven. Well, Rome comes along and says, we like that. And the people began to, to worship the same gods and practices and the same religion of the Babylonians. That is, before Constantine, before 300 AD, before the time of Christ, the Roman government was deeply involved in this false religious system. Now, eventually, when Jesus came on the scene and the church came on the scene, Christianity came on the scene, there was this tremendous conflict between the Babylonian religion the religion of the Jews, and Christianity. So this battle then ensued. An estimated 6 million Christians were killed within the first 300 years of the church's existence. Because to be a Christian was a capital offense. 
But in spite of the persecution, in spite of all that, the church was doing great. It would continue to grow. In fact, the more they were persecuted and the more they killed, the more it grew. So Satan goes, well, this isn't working out. If you can't beat them, let's join them. So he masterfully organized this plan through a man named Constantine, a Caesar of Rome, who's having problems keeping the military supplied and all the battles on the home front there in Rome. He needed more soldiers. He goes to sleep. He has a dream, so he said, that he saw a cross and a shield. He said that he was told to stop persecuting these Christians because they can become a part of his military. So take these Christians and put them in the military ranks. Besides, his grandmother was a Christian and he didn't want her to kill Granny. So, he says, hey, why don't you Christians just mellow out? We can all get along. We can coexist. And he issued what is known as the Edict of Toleration, which means that the Christians no longer had to uh, uh, hail Caesar as Lord. Well, suddenly the church was taken from a place of persecution to a place of prominence. And all, at that point, the, the marriage was born between the church and the state. Soon the state began to legislate the religious lives of the people. So in order to keep everybody happy, they said, let's take the Babylonian religion so that, that so many, they don't want to give up on that. Let's mix it with the taste of Christianity so we can just all get along. No more violence. All in the name of tolerance, we can coexist. Listen, you Christians, here's what you need to do, Constantine would say. Celebrate the birth of Christ. That's great. Let's just do it at the same time the Babylonian religion celebrates Saturnalia. And we'll just, we'll just all get along. Yeah, folks, the Jehovah Witnesses are right when they come to your door and they say that, that Chris, Jesus really wasn't born on December 25th. Uh, they're right. Uh, I mean, really, December 25th is a, a pagan day under the compromise, under Constantine, told the Christians to celebrate the birth of Christ. Which again, on the 25th of December, was the day the Babylonians celebrated to help the sun god get through the winter solstice. I just pray for our god to get us through the winter solstice, but I'm telling you. But the, the people of Rome, would have, they'd have these drunken holidays in which they would give gifts to one another. They would light candles and have bonfires and to help the sun get through the winter. They put these candles on evergreen trees because all the other trees lost their leaves. But the evergreen trees stayed green, which gave them hope on the other end. And they would put these candles on this tree. That's where they get all this stuff. It wasn't from the Word of God. So that doesn't mean, oh, we're Christians, we can't celebrate Christmas. You know, No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean we can't. I mean, what it means is we get an opportunity to preach Christ on Christmas. Actually, it's a great opportunity because there's only two times a year that a lot of people come to church, and that's Easter or Christmas. So when they come, we preach the gospel. But again, December 25th was not the day that Jesus was born. Constantly said, well, you know, why don't you just have this special celebration for this holiday? We'll call it Christ Mass Christmas. Interesting how the celebration of Christmas has gone back to pagan roots nowadays. But Easter, we've talked about it already. Ishtar is Easter, celebrating the fertility god is where Ishtar, Easter came from, eggs and bunnies. Well, Rome joined more Babylonian practices within the church. Along with those compromises, also came within the church the priesthood, penance, the placing of idols, the sign of the cross, crossing yourself for Tammuz, and the worship of the Queen of Heaven, Mary trusting her as co-redeemer. And the head of the Babylonian religion 
the chief guy, what was he called? Pontifus Maximus. And he wore this sign, this crown that had a sign of a fish on it, celebrating worshiping the fish god, Dagog. Dagog. Thus the evolution of the papal church in history. It's baptismal regeneration. It's the mysterious, magical thing they call transubstantiation, where at communion, supernaturally, the wine and the bread becomes the actual body and blood uh, of Jesus Christ. All this stuff that, that's going on in this church, all this was a mystery in John's day because the papal church, it didn't exist. But it's not a mystery today. It's done. It, it's here. It's no longer a mystery. That's why God calls the mixing of his word with anything else spiritual, like this fornication, the worship of God in an unscriptural way. And let me tell you, Roman Catholicism is that mix. It's mostly pagan with a little Christianity sprinkled into it with a lot of Christian terminology in order to deceive and delude souls. Pastor John MacArthur calls it a demonic religion that does not bring salvation. It cannot. Now again, in John's day, when Christians were martyred, they were thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil. They were fed to wild beasts and and ferocious animals by Rome for refusing to call Caesar Lord. But now, again, John sees this, this, this vision, this compromise of the true church, this false idolatrous church in Rome. And, and, and folks, I see what's going on here. And, and I'm not saying definitely that this is definitely the Roman Catholic Church and that we, we will be the final one world church. But clearly, it has strong, definite signs that it could be. What do we know about it? It is a worldwide church right now. It is the wealthiest church in the world. And it's the only church, to my knowledge, with one guy who claims to be infallible, that this guy, with the move of his pen, can make a new doctrine. He can alter the word of God. It's the only religion I know that can just sign on the dotted line and change doctrine. For years, the priest who didn't want fellow Catholics to read the Bible They said, only we can understand what it has to say. Only we have the ability to explain it to you because you can't understand it for yourself. And that produced the Dark Ages. But the Bible says in 1 Peter 1.20 that there is no private interpretation. What means that anybody that digs into the Word of God can understand the Word of God if you read it for yourself and you're listening to the Lord. Listen, the Bible says all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And to the shock of some, that includes the Pope. And the doctrines that they have, they are damnable. In the Roman Catholic Church, if your loved one dies, I was taught, you are taught, that you're sent to a place called purgatory. In order for those souls to be truly clean, to be truly saved, they have to stay in this place of of severe torment and flames until... You pray for them and pay money to light the candles on their behalf so others will pray for them. And eventually, enough prayers, enough money goes out, they can get out of this purgatory, this place of torment, and into heaven. So the more money you spend on lighting candles, the sooner your loved one can enter heaven. Basically what they're saying is that Jesus' work on the cross was not sufficient when you die. You're still going to have to pay for some of your sins. It's heresy. Peter describes it as destructive heresy. He says in 2 Peter 2.1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. That's denying the Lord who bought them. He paid for the price for every sin, all of our sins. You can't, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you no longer have to pay for your sin. That's why Roman Catholicism belongs in the category of false teachers, false religions, destructive heresies, not because of what I say about them, but because what they say about God's word and what they say about the gospel and, and what they say about doctrine. All you need to do to see that this is a false religion is to compare what they teach with what the word of God teaches and you'll see it for yourself. Now think about this. Once the rapture takes place, there will still be churches going on as if nothing has changed. There has been for quite some time the ecumenical side of the Roman Catholic Church where ecumenical propaganda goes forth, calling all religions to come together. Let's all coexist. And we're seeing, really like never before, Roman Catholicism and liberal Protestantism making moves to unite. In fact, here's a picture here. We, we see the Pope invited the leaders of all the different faiths to come together and to pray, as this current Pope claims, to the same God we all worship. Sorry, not true, false. My point is once the true church is gone, then this false religious system can join together with all these other different religions as one, all following this false Christ, this Antichrist riding this beast. Let me say this. The Roman church is not the only form of Babylonian religion. Other religions around the world practice darkness and incense burning and superstitions and ignorance and immorality and priesthoods and idolatry. You see, the final world religion is going to have something for everyone. You like rituals? You like traditions? Come on over here. You like New Age? Feel good entertainment? Come on over here. We'll give you what you want to hear to make you feel good about yourself. And we certainly can see our world heading that way. But if you're a church that speaks about sin, if you're a church that speaks about the need for repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ alone, oh, you're so narrow-minded. Even though it's Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me in John 14, 6. Even though the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, not by the word of man. That tells me that in the last days, there will be churches that will no longer teach, no longer preach the Word of God. And those churches, man, they're going to be applauded. The governments are going to want to, to, to just you know, help them out and they're going to be accepting because they're tolerant. But a church that calls sin, sin. A church that continues to teach and preach the Word of God and the reality of sin and hell and death and the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now, you guys are a threat will be labeled as hate speech, and you must be censored. Are we not seeing that today, folks? Government, as, as, as we're seeing today, is going to want to put a stop to them. Why? Because they're the ones, we're the ones speaking the truth. And it goes right against what the world is seeing, that their, their religion of tolerance and their religion of, of acceptance. Folks, there is a hatred, and there always has been a hatred for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the world hated me. And, and if you know me, guess what? The world's going to hate you. I mean, if, if you're going to, uh, you know, 
love me, then you're going to be according to the world's definition, this Bible-thumping, believing, narrow-minded, intolerant, godly, holy-living Christian confronting the lies of this world. You're going to be hated. Not many people are going to like you. But you know what Jesus said? Don't give up. I am with you to the end of the age. Keep going. Stay focused. Don't be seduced. Don't let off. You're saved by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, not by going to church, not by saying a prayer, receiving communion, or by being baptized. Certainly prayer should come, should follow being saved, and baptism should follow as well because it's something that Jesus asked us to do. Certainly communion we should engage in. But none of those things save you. Only believing in Jesus Christ saves you. Trusting in Him for everything, clinging to His every word, relying completely and totally upon Him and Him alone. It's a work that He has done upon the cross that saves you. Anyone that adds to that or takes away from that or says you have to pay for this or you have to do this ritual or, or, or this thing or that thing, watch out. Certainly we should be supporting the work of the Lord and we should be involved. None of those things, none of those works save you. Only by believing in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross are we saved. Nothing added. So we see the comparison between the world religion of Babylon and what will be the final world religion. This brings us to our final point, the destruction. Look at verses 16 through 18. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Here's what is very remarkable that I want you to take notice of. Next week in chapter 18, we'll see God destroy the city of Babylon. Chapter 19, we'll see God destroy the beast and the false prophet. But notice here in verse 16, that it's not God who destroys this last day's one world man-made religion. It's man. Man destroys it. Man destroys his own man-made religion. Irony of ironies, the beast and his buddies will turn on the harlot and they'll use her, they'll, they'll spit her out. Now again, the beast and his buddies will be destroyed in the plain of Megiddo where they said, hey, let's make war with the lamb at that battle of Armageddon. But here, the fake church, church left on the earth after the rapture, the pseudo-Christian church that ceases being Christian to appease the world and avoid persecution. What happened to them? Verse 16, they're naked, eaten, and burned. Listen, when we read history, as we watch the course of this world and where it's heading, and when we read what God has happened and what God says will happen, we know that it, with 100% assurance, God's word is true. Follow the history books. You know, watch our daily news. We're seeing it. God says what He means and He means what He says. These things have happened. These things will happen just as Jesus said they would. Let me give you a, a, a possible scenario, progression, and then we'll close with this. For the first half of the final seven years, the Antichrist, he's held as a man of peace. Jews and Arabs are going to get along. The false prophet and the religious harlot spread the message, all roads lead to God. Everyone coexists. We can all get along. But at midpoint, the Antichrist reveals his true colors 
and he defies the temple of God there in Jerusalem, the newly rebuilt temple of, of God there, claims to be God, claims to, to be worshipped as God, well, then the harlot is no longer needed. From now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast. And to secure that worship, the Antichrist blackmails the world. To participate in its commercial system, takes that mark on that right hand or on that forehead, the number 666. Those who refuse, you're either going to starve to death or you're going to be martyred. Verse 17 says, For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Again, in John's day, the only city to fit that description was Rome. Thus, in the last days, there has to be a revived Roman Empire. That's why in verse 5 she's called uh, Babylon. Now, you may think, well, Pastor Tom, we know you used to be Roman Catholic, and so, uh, you know, you're just anti-Catholic anything. That's not true. That's not true. I'm anti-false religion. <laughs> I, I'm opposed to any religious system that has enough of the truth to deceive the faithful and enough of the false to damn the followers to hell. See, a false religion is worse than no religion at all. Now, before you leave here and decide to go tear apart your Catholic friend, let me say this. I do believe there are real believers in Jesus Christ within the Catholic Church. They have to be ignorant to some of the doctrines that they, they perpetrate, what they know, what they teach. And there are a lot of people, they don't know what the Catholic Church teaches. They don't know some of these doctrines. They love the Lord. They read their Bible. They pray. They believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, they're born again. They're saved. And there's wonderful brothers and sisters in other churches as well, Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, even, even Episcopalians. But here's the one thing. Once these brothers and sisters are raptured, which I might add to many of them to their surprise. What's going on here? Because they don't know this. The remains of what was once the church will now be made up totally of just religious people without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the power and the prestige of the Roman church will grow exceedingly stronger all the while being manipulated by the Antichrist. Until that time, watch out for the false religion of men. Watch out for the rituals that men will think will secure them. Well, I went to church today, so I'm going to heaven. No, you're not. There are a lot of people that go to church that are, that are going to hell. It's a narrow gate. You can't come through that gate with all of your baggage. Jesus is the one who said it's a narrow gate. He said this in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Two gates marked for heaven on the outside. One a broad way that says heaven, but it actually is leading to destruction. The mystery Babylon. They talk about Jesus. They, they, they kind of look like Jesus, but they have all the trappings. But they say, hey, we can do whatever we want, live however we please. Because, hey, all roads lead to heaven. But it's that gate. It's that one that leads to hell and destruction. You know, I can't bring my flesh and my carnality with me? No. You know, you got to turn from all that stuff. All that self-esteem, self-agenda. Leave it and enter through the narrow gate. 
Jesus says, narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's narrow because we do want to hold on to things. We, we don't want to leave things behind. We want to carry that baggage. We want to think that somehow I can have something to do with my salvation. Jesus says, no, it doesn't happen that way. The road's too narrow. As well as there's only one person that can go through the gate at one time. You have to go through it alone. You know, it's like those turnstiles at an amusement park. You know, you can't go in as a family. You get all tangled up. That turnstile, you know, one by one. Same thing with heaven. You don't enter in with a group. Just because you belong to a group or belong to an organization, that doesn't mean you're assurance for heaven. Just because some religious organization tells you that doesn't mean you're assurance heaven. Just because a religious organization tells you, well, if you work your way to heaven, you'll make it. It doesn't make it so. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care what membership you have or how long you've been on the roll, unless you're a member of the body of Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again on the third day and is ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us. If you don't believe that, then you will die in your sins. It's that simple. So the question is, where are you at this morning? Do you believe or don't you? Not in a religion, but in a person, Jesus, the one who loves you, paid the full price for our sins. Where are you at? Bible says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It's, it's that simple. If you're not a Christian here today, I pray that you don't leave without making that commitment to Christ. One more thing before we close. For us as Christians, we know where our home is. We know what it truly means to follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. My charge for us today as Christians is even though we live in a day and age as, a, as the lines of truth are being blurred, when it's acceptable to not be dogmatic about anything, especially Jesus Christ, and people are drifting from the truth, my exhortation to all of us, including me, is to cling to the truth at all costs. At all costs. I want to close with these words from Charles Spurgeon, written over 100 years ago. They're as relevant now as they were then. He writes this, If the Lord does not speedily appear, there will come another generation and another, and all these generations will be tainted and injured if we are not faithful to God and to His truth today. We have come to a turning point in the road. If we turn to the right, may half our children and children's children will go that way. If we turn to the left, generations yet unborn will curse our names for having been unfaithful to God and to His word. I charge you, not only by your ancestry, but by your posterity, that you seek to win the commendation of your master, that though you dwell where Satan's seed is, you yet hold fast his name and do not deny his faith. God grant us faithfulness for the sake of the souls around us. How is, it, how is the world to be saved if the church is false to her Lord? Stand fast, my beloved, in the name of God. John Huss said this, Seek the truth, teach the truth, and defend the truth unto death. He was martyred at 46 years old by the Roman church for preaching the word. He was branded a heretic. Listen, that's the charge. The world is coming to a religious point of abandoning the truth. Stand up for the truth. It, it, it might cost you everything. It might cost you your family. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your life. But it's worth it to stand before the Lord and to hear from Jesus' own lips 
Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning, Lord. Thank you for your word, Lord, and, and Lord, how it gives to us the exhortation to stand fast upon your word. Help us, Lord, not to turn to the left, not to turn to the right, but follow you completely and totally in the days in which we are living. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you. Maybe they've been caught up in religion, but they don't have that relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that they would make that step of faith that says, Lord, I believe in you and you alone for my salvation. That you died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and that you've come to forgive me of my sin. You alone, Jesus, have the authority to forgive sin. Because you took it all upon yourself. All of our sin. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. Help us to cling to your truth in the days in which we're living in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll do one last.